morning. Hey, tell your neighbor you're looking good this morning. I'm glad you're here. And you may be seated. Thrilled to have you this morning. A lot of wonderful churches in our city, but we're honored that you're with us. You know what we're doing today is not isolated. Across the world today, there is a celebration of probably two and a half to three billion people. Uh, people that study these things estimate that there are 2.2 billion believers in Christ around the world. If the world has, say, six billion people, that's one in every three people this weekend are celebrating the greatest event of human history, the most pivotal event of human history, the fact that Christ died and then he came back to life. We celebrate more than Easter bunnies and baskets and family. We're celebrating our Christ. Well, this morning I'm starting a new series today. It's called Building Blocks. Can you say that with me? Building, building Blocks. It's about the core values that establish our life. Our, our, our building blocks, by definition, is simply the main beliefs that guide our life. And how many know everybody's got them? Whether or not we can write them down or whether we can articulate them, we're motivated, we're moved by what matters. And if I could illustrate it this way, because the right beliefs, core beliefs, what I'm going to call biblical beliefs, will allow us to have a blessed life, but the wrong beliefs will bring sorrow and pain. For example, let's say if you're raised to believe that human life has no value, very little value, that's what we're taught through evolution and abortion, many values in society, and maybe you're also taught that it's okay to hate people, maybe you're taught from birth. There's a lot of political rhetoric today about racial hatred and just based on the color of a person's skin, people are taught to hate. Well, guess what? If you're taught that it's okay to use violence, if that's a core value, that it's okay to use violence to get your way, here's what happens. In the city of Chicago, uh, the first three and a half months of this year, 871 shootings and 157 people were killed. Why is that? It's because values cause people to make these steps. Now, how about if you're taught this? There is a God and I'm accountable for my actions. If I'm taught not only by my parents, if my culture teaches it, if it's reinforced by the Disney Channel, if it's taught in school that there is a God, I'm accountable. If we're taught that it's better to love people rather than hate them, the second great commandment. If we're taught it's better to forgive than retaliate. How I many of these are all biblical values and it'll have different fruit? I suggest if you lived in the city of Chicago, it would be a safer place if these values guided the life than these. So this is what we're talking about, core values, building blocks. And uh, this first building block, building block number one is what I'm going to talk about today. Over the course of the next seven weeks, I'm going to give you seven to build a blessed life. But this morning, we're going to talk about what I believe is the most important building block of a blessed life, and that is simply this. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How many can say I'm with you, Pastor? Yeah. Let's start this morning. That's what I've entitled it, Building Block Number One. And let me read the story that you've heard many, many times, but the story that I would imagine that every Christian on the planet is pausing to remember today. And as we read from the Bible, I want to remind you that the Bible is not just a book for the preacher. It's not just a book of stories that you can look at like you do a Reader's Digest or a book on psychology. Uh, when I went to college many years ago, I, I kept a lot of my favorite books. Well, they're outdated now. They're meaningless. You probably couldn't get a nickel for them on eBay. But yet the Bible is a different book. 
if you even the most intelligent among us would know that there's something different about the Bible uh, as far as the number of uh, manuscripts of ancient antiquity just of the Greek New Testament there are incomplete manuscripts plus fragments some 25,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament if you go to a philosophy class learn about Aristotle there are only about 12 manuscripts of Aristotle if you were to take those manuscripts and stack them on each other, Aristotle's would be about four feet high. Only the Greek New Testament would be over a mile high. So the Bible is not just some storybook. It's not just a take it or leave it. But it's significant. Time itself is divided by the birth of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was B.C. before Christ, A.D. in the year of our Lord. So let's read his story, Matthew 28. It was early on Sunday morning after the crucifixion, after the burial. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face was shining like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. It was supernatural. The guards, these incredible strong Romans guards, they were like the SEAL Team 6 members of today. They shook with fear when they saw the angel and they fell into a dead faint. And then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid. He said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Say it with me. He is risen from the dead. He is not here. He is risen. The word resurrection, it means to come back to life. Jesus Christ is the only person in human history to come back to life after they died, but listen, never to die again. In the, if you work in the medical industry, you have perhaps worked with someone who, and you've been around someone that died. They flatlined, but they gave them care. They resuscitated them, but guess what? They're going to die again. But Jesus Christ, after he died, he came alive, and he's alive 2,000 years later. He's alive. That has bearing, friends, because if you look at the, the leaders of some of the major world religions, for example, if today you and I were to take a journey to Mecca, if we were Muslims and in their seven pillars of Islam, one of the things that are required for the believer, for the Muslim, is to go to Mecca at least once in their life. But when you went to Mecca, you could find the tomb of your prophet Muhammad. If you went to China, you could find the tomb of Confucius. If you went to India, you could find the remains of Buddha. But yet when you, go to, when you go to Jerusalem, you don't find the remains, you find an empty tomb. Now there's significance in this. For the Protestant, most of Protestant Christianity believes that the bar this is the burial place. It's in the, called the Garden Tomb. A simple tomb. It was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, but a stone was rolled over it. If you're from the Orthodox tradition or the Catholic Church, they believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's a shrine built around the tomb, a church built around the shrine. You can find pictures on National Geographic. But both those tombs have this in common, is they're both empty. And this is what I want to speak to you today because as I talk to you about the resurrection, I'm going to suggest to you that it is not only logical, it is not only fact-based, but it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Let me say it again today because we live in very much in a prove-it-to-me world. We live in a world today that if I can't see it or touch it or feel it, it must not be real. I'm going to suggest to you that there is proof that the resurrection happened. There is proof that I'm going to use four different examples. There is what I'm going to call prophetic truth. 
There is historical proof. There is testimonial proof. And there is extra biblical truth or proof. And then the second part of the message, we're going to kind of answer the so what. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then what does that mean to me? And I hope it's going to be beneficial to you this morning. So let's begin as far as the proof of the resurrection. We're going to begin in Psalms 22 as we talk about prophetic proof. Now, Psalm 22, the cameraman's in front of the clock, so I have no idea what time it is. Uh, anybody have anywhere to be before 2? Don't panic. Come on now. Psalm 22. Now, what you think about this? Predictions. Everybody, everybody wants to be able to predict the future. I love to turkey hunt. And uh, I was at my mom's house last week in Mississippi. I didn't get one. But I woke up in the morning and she had some little mice that are running around her house. And I woke up and there were two caught in a little trap. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. I get outside. We see raccoons on the road. We see rabbits. And this must be a, a good sign. But no Mississippi turkeys. I mean, even the weatherman, if you look at the weatherman, uh, I, I remember last summer it was really dry. My dad and my brother are farmers, and they needed a rain. And I looked on the weather map, and it said that day was a 10% chance of rain, but they got an inch. And then one day I looked, and it was a 90% chance of rain, and it didn't rain at all. So modern prediction is oftentimes guesswork, but the Bible is very, very different. And for you that are thoughtful of, of the claims of Christianity Look at the different prophecies that predict instances surrounding the life of Christ. I'll read one from you. It's Psalm 22. It was written by David, likely, a thousand years before Jesus was born. And I want you to listen and how it parallels the crucifixion story. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly what Jesus said on the cross I'm, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. This is a picture of weakness. It's a picture of like Christ when he was walking to Golgotha, to the hill of crucifixion. Someone else had to carry his cross. He'd been beaten with a cat of nine tails. All my bones are out of joint. Crucifixion, when, you're, when you're, your, your hands are nailed in your feet to breathe, you have to pull yourself up. And logically, as you were on this cross for hours, it would pull your, your bones and your joints would be stretched. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of the earth. The picture of burial. Verse 16, it gets more interesting. A pack of villains encircle me. Could this be the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross? Could it be the Jews that mocked him? But this next phrase is what catches my attention. They pierce my hands and my feet. Up to this point, the psalmist could have spoken of himself, but it's very clear now Crucifixion as a form of capital punishment didn't happen until 500 years after this was written. 500 years after this was written, and this was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ, he describes what happened in Roman crucifixion. All my bones are on display. The cat of nine tails would have ripped the skin. It had pieces of, uh, of metal and stone and barbs and it would pull the flesh from the skin. People stare and gloat over me. They mock Jesus on the cross. They divide my clothes among them and, and cast lots for my garment. Exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross. The second proof I offer you this morning is historical proof. 
Again, we forget sometimes that the Bible is, is more than just a book of inspiration and comfort. But the Bible is the most documented book of ancient antiquity of history that we have. Uh, there was a, a, a doctor, Gary Habermas, a PhD. He's cataloged 3,400 cons- uh, works on the fate of Jesus. Don't you think about this? 3,400. And this is not Facebook posts. It's my best joke of the morning. You didn't even laugh. 3,400 where he had read academic books that if your college professor assigns you one or your high school teacher assigns you one, you would look for the cliff notes. I mean, it was just too much. Large books, scholarly papers, peer-reviewed papers, 3,400 from not only people that thought like him and believed like him, but from skeptics. Skeptics like Fesser at a, at a university this past week, and she, she resigned because what she did created such a turmoil when she said Jesus was not crucified. He certainly didn't rise from the grave. So when he examined 3,400 people, he came not from the place of theology and Christianity, but what can we find are just the facts about what happened to Jesus Christ. Well, here's what they found out of these 3,400 works that he read. Number one, it was clear, very clear that they agreed virtually that Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, some would believe that he was, they would argue away the, the resurrection. they said, well, he didn't die. There was an article written in the, uh, uh, the journal of uh, the AMA, JAMA, a number of years ago. It was 1986, I believe. And it described the certainty of Roman crucifixion and the evidence that Jesus died likely of asphyxiation by pulling himself up just to breathe on the cross. And when they thrust the spear into his side, water and blood came out. There's medical terminology for all of this. But it's clear that he died and that he was buried. But this is interesting. And the tomb was empty a few days later. Now, he's in the ground, he's in a tomb, but historians agree that a few days later, they don't necessarily believe that he was resurrected, all of them, but they agree that the tomb was empty. The disciples were scared to death after Jesus was arrested, but then after Sunday morning, after he rose, they boldly proclaimed the resurrection. The resurrection was the center of their preaching in the early church, and these men that ran in fear were willing to give their lives And outside of Judas, of the remaining 11 original apostles, history tells us 10 of them died a martyr's death. Something changed. Orthodox Jews who believed in Jesus made Sunday their primary day of worship. And perhaps the greatest note of history, Paul the persecutor, the one we know as Saul, a Jew who went around killing Christians. He thought he was doing God a favor, but Jesus appeared to him. He had a vision in the midday, and the Bible says... He saw something brighter than the midday sun. He fell to the ground and said, Who are you, Lord? And the next thing we read is he's preaching the very faith he once denied. My question to you, friend, is why did these things happen? I suggest to you even the facts of history. Now, I'm not talking about to believe. I'm talking about the facts of history. Let me give you the third one. I'll call it testimonial proof. The conversion of James, the half-brother of Jesus... Don't you think about this? You can certainly understand that if you grew up with your brother and then one day your brother said he was God, it's pretty hard to swallow. I'm sure they'd taken baths together in the Jordan River. I'm sure bubbles came up in the, in the, in the river. You, know, you, you with me? I, 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 I'm sure Jesus, come on now, don't get too religious on me. He, he was a man. And now, certainly though he'd heard from Mary and Joseph how his birth was supernatural, but, oh, come on, Mom. Let's talk about James. 
James didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Actually, the Bible records that he and his brothers tried to stop Jesus from even saying anything at one of the great feasts. They tried to tell him to shut his mouth. But yet, a few days after the resurrection, after the, uh, the crucifixion, after the crucifixion, James became a follower of Jesus. Later on, he became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And then later on, he even died a martyr's death. I suggest to you there's a reason. What compelled him to change his mind about his older brother? The Bible, again, not just a book of inspiration, but a book of history. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. This affirms the prophetic nature. But listen to this. He was seen by Peter. This is the testimony. He was seen by the twelve. After that, he's seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. And then what does verse 7 say? Read this with me. Then he was seen by James. I suggest to you it is the proof of the resurrection of testimony. Let me give you one last one. I'm calling it extra biblical proof. I'm talking about proof that is outside of the pages of the Bible. Proof that history records and screams loudly to us. 1972, there was a professor at a Hebrew university in Jerusalem. His name was Professor Shlomo Pines. And this Jewish scholar discovered a manuscript of Josephus. You can Google Josephus on, on, your, on, your, on your computer, on your tablet. Josephus is probably the most respected Jewish historian of the day. He was born four years after Jesus was crucified. He was a historian for the Roman emperor. And he writes these words. This was discovered again in 1972. There were a number of texts that, 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 that they presumed came from him. But this was the most condensed. And, and here's what Josephus said. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. And many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. This is not the Bible talking to us. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples reported that he appeared to them. Three days after his crucifixion, and they said he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. And the tribe of Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Amen. That's an understatement because there's at least a couple billion of us walking around this great planet today. Come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand this morning. So I suggest to you in the strongest terms today, to answer what you believe. Because as you're trying to figure out life, so to speak, you need to come to grips. You need to answer the question, is what happened to the body of Jesus? Because if you can come up with a claim that the body of Jesus was stolen somehow, and that makes you happy. But look at these different facts that we've talked about today. And you, like many people, I saw a movie that was just pretty incredible a couple days ago. It was called The, Cause, uh, the Case for Christ. The case or the cause for Christ was in the cinema in town. And, and that movie was a story, true story about a Christian. His name was Lee Strobel. He was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Broke some great stories. Received uh, accolades in the press. But the, according to this movie, it tells his story about how he became a Christian. And he became a Christian by setting out to disprove Christianity. Setting out to disprove the resurrection after his wife became a believer. He made visits across the country. You hear from the testimony of medical doctors, of psychologists. You hear all the different theories that are postulated in the world. And he comes to the conclusion on his own that Christ, the facts show him, has indeed risen from the grave. Wow. Now, if that is true, 
And what are the ramifications for us today? What does it mean for you and I? Because it must mean more than just thoughts that I think it must impact the way we live. And I want to give you three things before we close today. Why is the resurrection so important for you and I? Number one is it tells us loud and clear is there is a God who loves me and Jesus is the way to him. Let me say it again. The resurrection loudly declares that there is a God. Because I want to tell you this, friends. This act of resurrection was supernatural. Listen, the best doctor in America cannot keep you alive beyond a certain date. You can take all the supplements in the health food store and you'd probably OD before you lived it. You know, are you with me? You can exercise every day of your life, but Jack LaLanne died. All the greats that have tried to live out, do death, they can't do it. This takes God. And that's what Jesus said. And if God rose him from, uh, from the dead, listen, he deserves our attention. It's popular today to call ourselves an agnostic or an atheist. The Pew survey uh, last year in 2015 did a survey and found that 23% of Americans, that's almost one in four, just said that they were an atheist, agnostic, or they were someone who had no religion. But I suggest to you, if you're in that class, that the resurrection was a supernatural historical event that no man can cause himself to rise from the grave. Only God can do this. Now, next week in building block number two, I'm going to talk about God. Next week's building block number two is my relationship with God is the most important thing in my life. We're going to talk about who God is, the existence of God. We're going to talk about how to have relationship with God. But I want to tell you this morning just quickly two things about God. Number one is He created us. Number two is He loves us. Experts tell us today how closely aligned our DNA is to chimpanzees. But guess what? You look, uh, we all look a lot different than a chimpanzee. It's a little bit, that little bit of difference. That God created us in His image. The psalmist says this, Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together. Say it with me. In my mother's See, today the ultrasound and other objects of, of, of medicine have been able to show us the details of, of how the baby is able to grow. You can get an app, they tell me today, and, and, and I've seen every day where you can read what's happening to the little baby in the mother's womb. And because we figured out, we've taken the wonder away. But I want to tell you, friend, God was the one that was responsible for all of our births. Even it became through a rape or through something that was not, you know, happy and normal. God is still behind us. God is for us. God has a purpose for our life and he loves us. Take a picture of this, of this, uh, this little baby. I think 12 weeks of age. Look at this little child. You can barely make it out there. But if you look at this little baby, I think 12 weeks, that child looks like me. Very modest. The, the nose, the ears. And it does look like me because that's my first grandchild. And uh, my son and, son and uh, uh, daughter-in-law are going to have a little baby pretty quick. And they tell me if it's a boy, they're going to name him after us, John Henry Miller the Fifth. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? If it's a girl, I, I suggested Juanita uh, Henrietta Miller, J-H-M, but... That didn't go too far, so ladies, don't worry. My wife will make me behave. He created you and I. And he created us, and he loves us. 
See, we forget this about God sometimes. He's not some creator that's wound up the universe. This is what the deist believes. He wound up the universe like an old-timey clock, and he just let it go. God's not like that. God wants to be involved in our everyday life, and God loves us and cares about us. We'll talk about him more next week. Let me tell you the second thing that the resurrection, why it's so important. The resurrection, see, the purpose behind the cross is this next one. Sin is the most serious problem facing every human being. Let me say it again. Sin is the most serious problem facing every human being. There wouldn't have been a resurrection without a cross. I saw a clip of Jimmy Kimmel, on, Jimmy Kimmel in his show on Thursday night. He was doing a, an interview with kids on the street about the resurrection. But in his opening monologue, he had a couple jokes about Jesus. But here's what he said about Jesus. He said, he said Jesus t- uh, taught us to love our enemies and be kind to the poor. And then he went into Easter bunnies. And though Jesus did teach these things, I thought, Jimmy, you're missing the most important part. You're missing the fact that Jesus died on the cross not because there were jealous Jews or Roman cruelty. He died to pay the penalty for our sin as human beings. If you can imagine if your your, your child was stolen from you and and you got this phone call and this garbled voice and it said, I want you to give me $10,000 or $100,000 or $500,000 or a million dollars or I'm going to kill your little baby. You love that child and you would do everything in your power to get that money and win that child back. Come on now, you're with me today. There's some things that are just irreplaceable, that are beyond cost. And the kidnapper, you would pay the ransom and you'd get the baby back. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When Adam sinned, he ransomed us, he kidnapped us towards Satan, and Jesus paid the ransom with his life. It, it, it's like if you own a car and, and you make the, you buy the car, you sign the contract, and you owe two ninety nine a month. And if you can't make that two ninety nine a month, one day the wrecker is going to come and they're going to repo your car. But Jesus, come on, can say paid in full. This is what makes Christianity different than any other religion on the planet. It was not just good teachings, but it was the substitutionary death that paid the requirements. For our sin. Romans 5 verse 12 says this. Listen to the Bible. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone because, say it with me, everyone sinned. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. But Romans 5 says this. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what's it say? Christ died for us. This is the cross. This is the ransom. And then verse 9 goes on to say that because of this, we shall be saved by Christ from the wrath of God. You see, in our little pea brain minds, we want God either to be just or loving. Most of the time, we want to hide His justice and just say He's loving and He doesn't care about what we do because He He does love us, but He's also just. And He loves us before He's just, but one day He will be just. Listen, friends, in case you've never heard this, The Bible calls it Judgment Day. It is predicted in the Old and New Testament alike. But the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, says this. John had a vision and he said, I saw the people who had died, great and small. I saw Julius Caesar and I saw the unknown pygmy in Africa. I saw everyone standing before God's throne. And books were open. The Bible teaches these books record our actions, our deeds, the the things we've done, good and bad. And the problem is these books are not on a scale like this because it only takes one sin to make a sinner. It only takes one sin to constrain us to unrighteousness. 
The dead were judged according to what they'd done. This is a horrible day as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Whether I like it or not, it's not. It, it, you won't hear it talked about on, on CNN or Fox News. You, you, you even won't even hear hell talked about in many churches today that don't believe the Bible. But the Bible is very clear. There's a judgment day coming. But my friends, we can escape that judgment day. That's what that prayer that we had in the middle of the service with Pastor Mike was. Inviting people to believe in Christ and put their trust in Him. That's how you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. He was not recruiting members for our church. We'd love to have you be a part, come back next week, be a part and all that. But that's not what we're doing. What he was about is trying to point people to Christ to say yes to Jesus, to say, I believe. There's good news after this lake of fire. There's a way of escape, a way to escape judgment. And this is the last thing that I'll say about the resurrection. Why it's important is because there can be life after death through Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. There can be life. People can live after they die. All of us will die one day, but God offers us life after death. Show you a picture of something. It's from a, a, a cross. It's a, it's a tombstone. It's on the beach of Normandy, and I saw this mo- uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan, uh, based on a true story. A lot of a lot, a lot of Hollywood in there, but I saw this cross when I was with some friends many years ago. When I saw it, and you see the name on there, John H. Miller. That caught my eye. Because we all know everybody dies but me. I'd be thrilled if my son had a boy. He'd be the fifth. The first John Miller is buried in a a cemetery in Memphis, Tennessee. I could find that grave. I'd have to look a while. There's a big elk in the cemetery. It's a statue. And my great-grandfather, I never met him, but he was the first. My grandfather called him grand, John Henry Miller the first. He's buried in a little cemetery in Love Station, Mississippi. My dad's still living. I'm the fourth. My son's the fifth. But all of us will go through this valley one day. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But I want to tell you, friends, death comes to all men. I read yesterday that the world's oldest woman died yesterday, 117. She was a woman. She lived in Rome. The secret to her long life was she ate two eggs a day and cookies, and that was it. She was born in 1898, the last living person in the 19th century. All of us will die. I don't like to think about it, but here's what Jesus said. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Say this with me. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? I don't know about you, friends, but I want to say today, I believe. Come on, give him a good hand today. He's worthy of our praise. I'm going to close with, uh, to to take the last couple minutes. Five minutes will be out the door. But would you take just a second? And I do hope when you leave, there's a little booth out there. Stop by, a little guest booth. They got a gift bag for you. And, you know, you can take a picture of your family. We'll have it matted next week. You can pick it up. But these next five minutes could be the most important five minutes of your life. Because I want to give you a chance to join us in prayer.
I want to tell you two things about prayer. The one who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, said these words. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Just a minute, we're going to have some men and women here to pray for you if you'd like before you go. But maybe you walked in church today with a heavy burden. If you just live life long enough, how many know you're going to have some heavy burdens? You're going to have some disappointment. Somebody's going to hurt you. It's hard to get rid of. It's hard to forgive. A few years ago, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I praise the Lord she's cancer-free today. But every, There she is over there. Wave at everybody, sweetie. Yeah, next week she'll have a part of the, in the service. But everybody has stuff. I, I remember when that season of our life, every time we'd have prayer time in the church, I'd come forward. You say, well, you're the preacher. I know, but I'm a person before I'm a preacher. Because we all need prayer. It could be a prayer for your family, your work, your own physical health, whatever it is. Somebody you love and care about. But you're going to leave this building today. I hope this was a good service for you. I hope you enjoyed the worship. I hope the Bible was meaningful to you. But you're going to leave and your world may be the same. And the same problems that were there will probably be there. But if it's a great problem, I want to tell you today, friends, you can leave that problem at the altar. And we want to pray with you if you have any need. I also would like to pray with you about your spiritual life. I want to remind you of a verse in the Bible that probably everyone that was raised in church knows. My Sunday school teacher, Julia Guy, I went to a little Methodist church out in the country. Five pews on each side. We had two Sunday school rooms in that church. One from when I was a young uh, a kid, one from when I was a teenager. We only had one. It was only two families that had kids. But she taught me John 3.16. Can you say this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm grateful that I learned that as a boy. That's why it's so important that parents bring their kids to church, to Sunday school, to Bible quiz, all those things. But you see, when I was a boy, I was a good kid, I guess, more good than bad. But church was in my head, not in my heart. Jesus was like kind of in the backseat of life. Whenever I'd have a problem or a crisis or trouble, man, I would pray. <laughs> but as soon as it was over, I'd kind of put him back on the shelf. And I came to a place in my life, I was 19 years of age. On the outside, everything looked great. I mean, I had this, I had this cool-looking hairdo. I mean, this is a long time ago. Okay? I, had, I had real hair. But I had, a, I had a new car. I mean, I was, on, I was on an athletic scholarship. I was dating the head majorette, the cheerleader. And outside, it looked good. But inside, something was missing. Because I tried to find meaning and happiness in life apart from God. And I couldn't do it. And you know, becoming a Christian, following Christ, is not just an arbitrary decision. Jesus made this comment. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father. In other words, no man can go to heaven. No man can get saved unless the Spirit is drawing him. And maybe as I'm speaking right now, it's almost like God's talking through me. He's saying he wants you to make a step to Christ. Again, not to join this church, but to make a step to Jesus and do what I did on August 15, 1976. Say, Jesus, I believe in you and I want to surrender my life to you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe for whatever reason you missed that earlier prayer time when people prayed this prayer. Well, we'd like to pray for you today. Maybe you're here today and maybe you can say, Pastor, I've just gotten away from God. But I want to come closer to God. 
Friend, we want to pray for you today. If you come to prayer for that reason to get right with God, we want to give you something, a little book that will help you live the Christian life. Because it's important to me that you came today, but what's more important is that you live for Jesus after today. So let's do this. We're going to have our prayer time right now, and we're going to pray for anything. Any need you may have in your life, most importantly, if you'd like to make a step to Christ. I'm going to ask you to, let's all stand to our feet right now. And they're going to begin to sing. And we have our prayer team coming to the front right now. Men and women that are coming right now to pray for you. And if you want prayer this morning, why don't you just slip out of your chair and just come let us pray for you. I mean, it could be a miracle moment for you if you let someone pray for you. Because Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And most importantly, friend, if you're here and you say, I need to get my life right with God. That's right. Just come on. Just begin to come now. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to hurt you. But we're going to pray for you because this could be a significant moment in your life. And if you're coming to the front for prayer and you want to commit your life to Christ, you tell them and they'll make sure they help you. Let's sing this last song. You come and let us pray this morning. I love you. Thanks for being here.